photographs and memories. A travel market life series sponsored by Atomize. My merrymaker today is Stephen Dow. For more than 20 years, Stephen has led wide-reaching commercial projects and devised bespoke revenue programs for a range of public and private operators across Europe, UK and North America. He has worked with accommodation providers including Diamond Resorts, McDonald Hotels and Resorts and The Collective. In mid-2020, he switched to the vendor side of hospitality, joining Res Harmonics as their Chief Commercial Officer. Photographs and Memories Stephen Dow, welcome to Photographs and Memories. Hi Michael, great to see you. So you've shared three photographs of places and people with us, moments that are particularly important to you, whether that is professionally or personally. During the course of our conversation, we'll cover each of those photographs where you will take us on a journey uh, through time, reflecting on the significance of that moment. You've also brought in along a souvenir, which has a special place in your heart. But before we explore the stories behind the photos and the souvenir, please can you tell me how you came to work in the hospitality industry? Okay. And it's just a, definitely, it's only a 20 minute podcast, just for a clarification. <laughs> and no, it's great to be here. So thanks again, Michael. Um, it's, a, it's a quick story, but I, I started off in engineering, standing in the middle of the North Sea, studying engineering degree on an oil rig, um, which was a bit of an odd career, but follow your parents is what I ended up doing. Father was an engineer. And then in 98, you may not remember it now because we're both getting old, but uh, the oil prices crashed terribly. Uh, and I was actually made redundant because I was fortunately being paid to go through that as part of a study in work placement, which was a great opportunity, but unfortunately didn't end too well. So halfway through, I took my money and headed off to Australia, did some traveling. Budget didn't quite match my expectations. So 12 months turned into about four and a half months. I couldn't quite do the hostel and ended up enjoying hotels more than a hostel. Um, but maybe I've got a snob factor problem, people tell me there, I'm not sure. But um, I enjoyed the hotel side of it. Met some people out there who are working in real estate sales and hotels and hospitality and even timeshare from the US. Got back, stayed in touch with those guys and uh, ended up getting a, a job up in a Scottish resort uh, on the banks of Loch Tay uh, in real estate and hospitality sales. So yeah, that's what got me into it. So an oil rig platform to Australia and back to the, the banks of Loch Tay. Any regrets about not ending up as an engineer or are you uh, pleased that uh, fate played its hand? Um, I probably have had some, to be fair, yes. When I wish I was as clever or as capable as my father when I see some of the things he can just do. Um, he was my full mechanical engineer and ran big CNC plants and lathes and all very cool. Um, I don't have a clue how to do any of that because I never finished it. So, yeah, there are some – I guess it depends on how bad your week's going, isn't it? If you're having a bad week, you reminisce and think, yeah, I should have been an engineer. But, uh, no, I, I've enjoyed my time and I think I've got to see a huge amount of the planet um, politely on someone else's dollar and you sometimes forget just how lucky you are when you tick off the countries that you've seen and the, the cultures you've experienced. So I don't think so. I think I'm, I'm so pleased with the path I took. I just regret not having that knowledge is probably the part. Interesting, because I'm also an engineer turned hospitality guy. So I think I, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. 
So let's have a look at your first photograph. It's of your son and daughter. Uh, please tell us about this one. Yeah, I think um, this is William, who's just turned 10. Bella, or Isabella, but she's definitely a Bella. Uh, she's about to turn seven. But yeah, I guess it sounds probably quite corny, but for people without children, and I obviously was one of those people, I never used to quite understand the bond. Um, but yeah, every, everything I do, every minute of every day, uh, it's for those guys and it's just funny how that changes I mean not to exclude my wife she'll be irritated by that comment but yeah I think the word dependency when you don't have kids it's just a word and you understand what it means but when you've actually got the children it's just an added layer of responsibility and I suppose pressure and after I had them or we had them uh, we have them should say um any job I've ever had that I thought was difficult it just seemed, seemed a lot easier by comparison than it was with kids. Um, it's just one of the toughest challenges ever. Um, and it makes the everyday work and life seem easier, definitely. But trying to balance both worlds is difficult. But yeah, that's that's what I get up for every day, is those two little people. Uh, trying to give them, hopefully, um, a better life than I've had or better opportunities. And I was given a lot by my parents. But yeah, that's the that's the goal of that photo. And uh, there's a great Barack Obama quote. I don't know if you've listened to some of those. It's wonderful to listen to it. And he said, um, it's about increasing the gene pool and trying to make sure that the, the next generation is either smarter or not that that's going to be difficult before you say it, Michael, but um, it's certainly smarter or achieves more than, than you achieved. So yeah, that's that's the goal every day when I wake up. Now, in hospitality, we work long hours. It's not always easy to balance family and, and work life. How have you managed to do that? Um, well, interestingly, my career has changed quite significantly now, um, certainly versus the first sort of 10, 15 years. I travelled up to 75, 80% of the time, sometimes more. I'd be North America for two months. Um, and then come back to Europe. So really, you know, on the edge of your legal allowances to be in a different country at times. But that was without kids. And then when the kids arrived, um, it, it became very difficult. And I think only now, over the last three years, and obviously COVID's really, how would you say, magnified that time that I missed um, as I sit at home now and see them every day. And they're at an age now where you can interact too. So I guess the experience is slightly different. But yeah, I think I probably that's a regret next to the engineering one a little bit, probably more, where I just missed a lot of my son's early years. Uh, and I'd fly back in, see a stressed mess, <laughs> nappies and screaming and think, oh, great news, I'm off back to the airport on Tuesday. Which <laughs> is probably quite harsh when you say it, but that, that's what you felt at the time. But um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a hard balance. Definitely. And I think if you had my partner before, uh, I had the job, the crazy travel, then the partner, so they understood the crazy travel, then you add kids. I think from speaking to friends, that's easier than maybe doing those in a different order. And I suppose one of the silver linings of COVID is that we've actually had this opportunity to spend a large amount of time at home, um, which we would never have had, had it not been for COVID. Agreed. I think that, I think the hardest thing there is, and hope some parents agree and it's not just me but home homeschooling uh and a full-time job and back-to-back -back zooms <laughs> i uh 
I, w- I was doing a one-man conga around the house the day they went back to school, to be quite honest with you. It was uh, a huge relief because, again, it's that dependency common and you're suddenly responsible for these two kids trying to get a job in later life. It's quite a bit of pressure. And albeit the curriculum is obviously easy, you want to make sure that they're, they're applying themselves and they're learning and you're not a trained teacher. So that was actually quite difficult. I found that really quite challenging. So my wife took English, I took maths, and we tried our, we tried our best, shall we say. So. Good stuff. So let's take a look at your next photograph. Um, it's of an orangutan. Uh, so I'm presuming you're in Borneo somewhere. What's the yeah. story behind this one? Yeah, yeah. For, the, for the non-visual impact and, and my gingerness and history, this is not a family member before you go there. Um, I, I was waiting for it, so I'm going to go there before you do. Um, but no, um, a real fascination with, uh, mm. with this photo and there's a bit of a story to it. We were in Borneo, my wife and I, before before the kids, and this is our last holiday before the children. So I always remember sitting in a lovely resort and life was kind of perfect. There's no lower stress. Um, you know, the only stress we had was what drink to order next. You know, we're very fortunate in that respect. Um, but I gave her a, an SLR camera for that Christmas. She wanted to do photography, and she studied that for about two years in a, a personal hobby. But this was the sort of the big peak of the, the use of the SLR camera. So we stood in the jungle for what was probably 12 hours. And then I had to edit down. And, and I kid not here. I really kid not. I think it was something like six or 7,000 photos that she, she took of these animals. To, and, and we found two, two that were perfect. And, and this was one. And people have tried to buy that little photo. And... So yes, I'll be watching you, Michael. I should have copyrighted it when I sent it, but it's just a perfect photo. And I guess there's different memories there, isn't there? Because we had, it was our last time as a couple on a nice <laughs> nice holiday relaxing before we had family. It was a great experience to, to see um, the orangutans in their natural habitat and just a real um, resetter of, of, of what life's about and, and seeing how endangered they were and how sad that situation was from a sort of tourism perspective, the impact that's gone on on the planet as well. Yeah, it was just a real strong memory that stuck and I'll never forget, you know, I mean, the photo is there for, for us that can see it, but we were literally within, you know, a metre. Some of them would come over and touch you and stroke you and it was just, I guess you have to experience it uh, and, and to experience that was just, no, well, it was very powerful and it's something I'll never forget. And, and she was so happy with her one in thousand photos. <laughs> so I remember it for a number of reasons, good and bad. But uh, yeah, an amazing experience that I don't think you could recreate. But definitely from a travel and a perspective too, just, yeah, when you look at the situation now, you don't know what travel you're going to be doing. And I'm just great to have that as a powerful memory. So yeah, wonderful one. So you mentioned the third photograph, which is you standing at uh, the Everest Base Camp, uh, which is off the beaten track in many respects. Um, t- tell me about that one. Oh, goodness me. Um, that, that, that entire trip was the result of too many beers in a bar with my sister, um, who said, hey, sign up for this. It'll be good fun. Oh, no problem. You know, um, <laughs> stick me down. There's my deposit. I'm probably thinking it was something completely different to what it actually was. Um, but my goodness, what an experience. What a phenomenal experience. And, and we signed up to trek to, to base camp at Mount Everest. 
Um, so we trained really, really hard. Um, obviously, considering you know the risks of altitude sickness and the success rate of people to actually make it there. Um, and we got up to um, I think it was five, five, four, five meters, looking at the little flag, and we actually summited. Um, a mountain just opposite base camp because I wanted to go to the peak of something, not just stand on a flat bit. It seemed a bit pointless. Um, and obviously we were trekking and not full mountaineering. But it was a it was an amazing experience. And we got up at yeah, I think it was three or four AM. It was minus 40, 40, 45% oxygen in the air. You were walking um, you know, as if I was 120 years old. It was quite bizarre. You take five steps and, <sighs> and it's just it's just a surreal experience. Um, and my, I did it. My sister made it. My wife made it. My brother-in-law made it. And the four of us out of a group of about, I think, it was sixteen, but about four, four or five didn't make it. And everything from pressure in your eyeball exploding, leaving in a helicopter. I mean, real dangerous stuff. Um, sprains, broken ankles. You know, just falls. It's really quite risky, even trekking. So to go there, stand there, and see the see the sun come up. Mount Everest was pretty damn cool. So yeah, as much as it was a, a big regret and a lot of training, it was just yeah, you you can't buy an experience like that. It's just amazing. So it took about three weeks to get there and back. Wow. So on the other end of the spectrum, you've worked at some pretty amazing resorts and hotels in your time. Do you have a particular favorite? Yeah, I've touched a lot of brands, even on a personal level, but um and I imagine some ex-employers probably want me to say the names here of their properties, but it's probably relates to the, the orangutan photo, and that was the Rasseria um, in Borneo, which was just service personified. Uh, unbelievable, um, absolute amazing experience, um, and very much touches on the, the sort of the five senses experience of, of the customer which is a bit Shangri-La um, in terms of, you know, touch, feel, smell as you go through entering the property and all the experiences and interactions you have with the staff or an activity. But, yeah, just really well done, Michael. So, yeah, that's that's probably another reason that that one stands out. But um, in terms of the US, I mean, I spent a lot of time working there for a brand there as well. And, yeah, just visiting some of the, the Disney properties in particular and experiencing customer service again personifies just it's phenomenal you know you look back to i'm early 40s now and i think back to family vacations in the uk when you were sort of 5 10 15 years old and everything from a horrendous menu or quality of food being serviced and people grunting at you you know it was just light years from from you know the wonderful service that's in the us um, and, and you see that around global brands now. But, yeah, um, makes you giggle when you look back. But I think that slowly made it to Europe. <laughs> now we're very used to it all. Um, yeah, that's probably what I would say. And do, you, do you have a favourite destination uh, in, in Europe, so on your doorstep, UK or, or, or Europe? Is there any place that you find or feel is on a par with anywhere else in the world? Um, I do love Scotland, not to be corny uh, with the accent there as well but I do I feel very relaxed I think the just the density or the, the lack of density of people per square mile just makes it a less stressful place to be um, the countryside the nature it's all just there you know it's not like you have to visit some zoo in a large city but yeah I mean I come originally from the east coast of Scotland in Perth and Perthshire so 
it's it's a beautiful part of the world. Um, you know, things like the very cliche, but things like parts of the Braveheart scenes in the movie and that were filmed in Perthshire. So you can sort of think about that and understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, at the top of the map of Scotland, um, you've probably heard of John O'Groats and sort of the Land's End to John O'Groats Challenge and, and the UK length. But my wife's father bought a croft at the very, very top of the map um, and, and done it all up and it, the gable end of the house looks right across the North Sea. Interestingly, oil rigs I used to be on, which is kind of bizarre, but um, just beautiful. Uh, fishing off the rocks, the most relaxed I've ever been. You know, forget five-star resorts and things like that. Just nothing to think about. Just chill out. The air's always better. Don't know why. Just is. And you always sleep really well when I'm there. I don't know why. It's just less less stressful, but less intense. But yeah, definitely on the retirement plan, I would say. Fantastic. Steve, thank you very much for being our memory maker today. But before we wrap up, uh, you've brought along a souvenir. Please tell us about it. <laughs> it's a it's a bit of an odd one, isn't it? It's a boxing glove. And um, I spent, as I said to you before, I spent a lot of time working for a US-based hospitality brand and great part of my career and really probably shaped vast percentage of my experience. And, and a lot of that travel, you know, those guys paid for, which was wonderful. Um, but yeah, as, as part of traveling the world, I used to go back to the head office in Las Vegas a lot. I mean, to the point, I think I was probably there, I say 50 or 60 times, which is a huge amount of time to go to somewhere like that. Some people dream of it. So I appreciate how fortunate I was to go there, but it did get a bit old <laughs> after a while. But as I was walking around one weekend on a long trip on my own, and you can't do any more shopping after you've been there so many times. Um, I just, I, I could hear this voice in a sports store. I thought, how do I know that voice? And uh, I thought, no, it can't be. But of course, it's Vegas, and it was Mike Tyson. And he was in a sports store looking at his own memorabilia and passing it back and forth. I think it was like an auction or something going on where he was going to be involved. So uh, anyway, I, I went up and thought, I'm going to introduce myself to him. And he said, uh, I'll tell you what, um, he said, I've got these gloves um, I'm going to be putting them in an auction. He said, but I think it was because I was British and a bit random rather than a local American. And we were talking about fights and Holyfield and things like this. And he just loved my accent, which helped. And, and he said, look, hey, stick some money in my charity. Um, I'll give you the glove. I'll sign it. We'll sit and have a chat. So I sat there for, it was probably 40 minutes, maybe 35 minutes, having a chat with Mike Tyson. Um, and just bizarre, but what a lovely bloke. He nearly broke my hand, uh, and he wasn't even joking. It was frightening how strong this guy was, and just solid. And he just he just said to me, I said, what, what piece of advice have you got for me? What's the best piece of advice you can give me? Pure corny question to ask someone like that. And he said, uh, just never, ever, ever give up. Never give in and never give up. And I thought, yeah, perfect, you know. And just to me, that was Mike Tyson, but yeah sat and chewed the fat with Mike Tyson in Caesar's Palace for 40 minutes <laughs> and didn't expect to. Totally random. Kept the glove, brought it home, put it in that little case. Brilliant. Stephen, it's been an absolute delight having you on the show. Thank you once again for being on Photographs and Memories. Michael, completely different experience. Loved it and thank you for the invitation. Awesome. Thank you. Photographs and Memories, sponsored by Atomize, produced by Haynes Marcoms as a travel market life series. For more, visit travelmarket.life.